Hey there. Welcome on back to King of the Ride podcast, episode number 96. Now look, I don't know if my memory is bad, which it just may well be, or if the freshest conversations are the most lively, the most exciting in my mind, but today's conversation with Carl Decker is one for the ages. I know it could have gone for another three hours. Eh, maybe three hours is long. Maybe three hours over the course of three different conversations. Anyway, on the eve of Rebecca's private Idaho, he and I caught up to talk shop in seemingly every capacity. Beginning with his dad as a pursuit specialist with the Oregon police, to his lifelong tinkering with cars and car racing. We talk about Carl's 20-year professional cycling career, let alone the years he spent racing prior to that. The time he was the best runner for his age group in the entire country. We talk about where gravel is now and where the heck it is going. Carl is something of an oracle. He has seen some things in the sport and his predictions are probably far more accurate than most. This one I know is one you're going to enjoy. Stay tuned. I would like to thank Athletic Greens for supporting this episode. In particular, their daily pouch, AG1, is something that I started taking every day without fail for the past two months since it first landed in my mailbox. Because, quite frankly, I wanted to simplify my life. No more spending loads of money on vitamin pills every single month. No more wondering where I'm going to get the macronutrients, the probiotics, the adaptogens that I rely on in my daily diet. No more worrying about cross-contamination in this, call it, contemporary world of funky pseudo-ingredients found in the nutrition aisle. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's simple. One scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I start my day. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. As a bonus, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. So quite simply, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash tedking. Again, athleticgreens.com slash tedking. You can take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's it. That's all. Folks, here's our conversation with Carl Decker. Carl Decker, welcome to the show. Tell me something. What was the color of your first bike? My first bike was blue, fittingly enough. Uh-huh. I, I'm a giant. I you know bleed blue now, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, I had a blue BMX bike that my dad made from parts that nice. came from a barn somewhere in coastal Oregon. Okay, and that is my understanding. You are you are Oregonian, born and raised. Um, give me the the full rundown, the who, what, where, when of your upbringing. Uh, yeah. So I. Let's see. I'm, uh, well, let's just start at the start. I'm Carl Decker. I'm 47 years old. I <laughs> am from Bend, Oregon. I'm a professional bike racer and a semi-professional car person. And I yeah, grew up the Oregon coast, moved to Bend, Oregon when my dad got transferred there in 1981 and started racing mountain bikes. My dad was a state cop, mm-hmm. so he got transferred to Bend. It was a it was a plum gig, 
And that was probably the luckiest day of my life because the nice. Oregon coast would not have brought me to where I am today. Yeah. And uh, so we moved to Bend and uh, it was not really known for, it was kind of a, a derelict uh, timber town a little bit at that time, kind yeah. of like a lot of Oregon was. It wasn't the kind of mecca for craft beer and mountain biking <laughs> that it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, started racing bikes in 1984. My dad was a, a bike nerd uh, through and through. Like he rode his bike, his Schwinn across the United States when he was 20. Whoa, um, legendary. Yeah, like, you know, nylon shorts, no sunblock. Yeah. You know, it's, it's no helmet, than, some big aviators. Yeah, and like, this. you know, he dug ditches in Nebraska, I think, for a couple weeks to pay for <laughs> the rest of the food and stuff. So, um, But yeah, I, I ran in high school a bit. That paid for college. Um, What'd you study? Criminal justice. Taking a page out of Dad's book? Yeah, my dad and I are pretty similar. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, that was, I was kind of good at, hard sciences and stuff but once I got into college I was like you know this is just because I'm kind of good this doesn't make it interesting really sure were you um, more on that youth side you said you're a runner did you do any other ball sports skis I was bad at ball sports man. Okay. <laughs> like weren't we all <laughs> like that's why we're here so I, I, like here, here's an anecdote I was on a team in like city league soccer when I was 8 or 10 yeah and we were undefeated, except this, the one game where I scored for the other team. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. That is yeah. as good an anecdote as Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, not great at ball sports. Um, but, you know, cycling is one of those things where you can start early and just kind of make yourself into something over a long period of time, you know? You get an early start, and mm-hmm. it can be a lifelong pursuit. It's, you still find find improvements and and ways to to better yourself at the tender age of forty seven. So well said. That's where I'm at. Well said. Okay, you go off to college. Did you did you get your degree? Yeah, I got a degree in criminal justice, University um, of Portland. What were your career opportunities then? Was was it your plan ever to to pursue it did you pursue i figured it? i would become a cop at some yeah. point just because it was the path of least resistance and i did find it to be interesting work like if you're outside you're doing good yep uh air quotes there i think it's doing good sure. uh and my dad was a pursuit spe- specialist for the state police so he he drove fast cars and chased bad guys it was kind of like you know for a kid that grew up watching chips yeah at the age of 21 i was like yeah that's that, that seems okay as far as like real jobs was that but, so but what i really wanted to do was be a professional cyclist right. i just knew that that was impossible yeah from yeah, you know from yeah, the age yeah. of 10 i was like what well that's what i'd like to do mm-hmm. but like the odds of that i'm you know my mom you, was the lunch lady my dad's a cop i'm not gonna be right a professional cyclist be real what i want to ask is the idea of a professional cyclist, like, do you even, as a as a ten year old through the through your teens, do you have the idea of okay, I want to be on a professional cycling team and I want to be going to big bike races? But what I really am going to ask is, is it thrilling as a kid knowing that your dad is a pursuit specialist, or do you take that? It was with a grain of salt. Be like, yeah, okay. No, it's it was interesting. It still is. Yeah, uh, my dad's a good storyteller. Yeah, and he's just got crazy stories. You know, like he's just. 
that's what he did, chase dudes on crotch rockets. How? <laughs> and, and, you know, people that are trying to get away. How frequently do high-speed chases happen? <sighs> Not super frequently. Yeah. Um, and some cops just let him go. Sure. And now, you know, in, in a lot of cities, they don't, they have a do not chase type yep, of thing. Yep, yep, Which is probably better. But um, it was kind of more Wild West back then. Okay. That's he, was, he drove a slick top, which means no lights on top yeah. to make it faster. More arrow. A slick top uh, Mustang with a <laughs> stick. <laughs> you know? Oh, my Lord. This is chips. Like, literally, like, oh, there's a bad guy. There's somebody doing something they shouldn't or yeah. a stolen car or whatever. Like, go into the ditch and pop the clutch and, like, burn out. That's and that's incredible. what he did. Like, I rode with him at work. And, like, mm -hmm. the first thing you do is bring the car up to temperature. Mm -hmm. And then he'd, like, accelerate up to 120 miles an hour. Yep. And make sure everything felt okay. Because... Mm -hmm. He wasn't the last guy to drive the car mm -hmm. the last mm -hmm. shift. So, anyway. Uh, Do you think that also planted the seed for you to, to, to be a car guy? For sure, yeah. And was he a tinkerer? I mean, he built yeah, your bike. absolutely. I come from a, a okay. family of engineers on both sides. and Yeah. And my first car was a free car from the neighbor with, it was an old Volvo with the engine and the trunk and pieces, and we built that. Uh -huh. and, yeah, when I was 14. Okay. I was out there like waxing this piece of crap Volvo that was free when yeah. I was 14. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, Got it. Uh, and yeah, so, I, you know, for better or worse, that's where I caught that, that car bug. Um, okay, so then somewhere along the line, the concept of, of the idea of being a professional cyclist must be getting closer to reality. I mean, if you, what's the chronology out uh, after college? So college was, you know, I was a, I was a, Pretty well. I'll qualify. I was a damn good high school runner okay. when I was 15. As a sophomore, I was like maybe I think I was the fastest sophomore in the United States on the track. Hot damn. L let me clarify though that <laughs> this was at like the absolute nadir of American distance running. Like it was like the no fat thing. Like every, everybody's yeah. just eating carbs all the time. Low mileage. I was like I wouldn't. I'm, I was terrible by today's standards. I, like, I wouldn't even <laughs> register. I would have been a varsity guy on any team still. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I was hot shit as a sophomore. And <laughs> I my personal best uh -huh. from my sophomore year, when I was 15, stands today. That's outstanding. <laughs> I, I matched it twice in college. Okay. Which wasn't very good. Uh -huh. and, uh, and here I am. Running became less and less fun yeah. in college as the pressure and just the and the lack of of forward momentum there was just kind of crushing because yeah. at the end of college at six six I was six years into trying to best performances that I'd set one year after beginning to run oh that's nuts so okay. interesting it, like it wasn't I wasn't in a healthy place for with running and I really didn't know if I even enjoyed bike racing again yeah because I'd raced as a kid I started you know my I did my first mountain bike race at age nine it was okay. 31 miles yeah yeah which is kind of crazy that's pretty big distances my year brother old. did that race he was seven yeah <laughs> we were both on BMX bikes my dad built three speed hubs on the Schwinn Predator BMX bikes wow and we did this race to start at Mount Bachelor and it didn't bend and I mean, my brother was like, it was like an old lady driving a car where she's looking through the steering wheel. Yeah. That was my brother looking through his handlebars. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, 
Sometimes. Everyone, everyone finished without tears or maybe a couple of tears. Yeah, shed. sometimes there's tears. You just run out of food. You yeah, bonk yeah. your kids. You make mistakes and whatever. You that cry a hilarious. lot. But we wanted it more than anything. You know, we were just yeah. my my dad instilled that in us somehow. So anyway, college. Love I started racing bikes again. My brother had been racing bikes. He dropped out. He ran for Boise State for a year. Uh-huh. Didn't go well. Eventually, he dropped out and started racing bikes. And I was, he was like kind of working his way up through the semi-pro ranks. And this is kind of when mountain biking was at its peak yeah. for like wages and press and notoriety. Mm-hmm. Like semi-pro guys, guys that weren't even getting, weren't even pros, were getting contracts for money sure. to be semi-pros, which is just to be an expert and get twenty grand a year right now is just. Right. Obscene. This is what, late 90s? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I graduated yeah. in 97. Um, so my brother was racing. I joined him again, and we were racing for Deschutes Brewery out of Bend yeah, and Razzik sure. Cycles, which was this weird, weird bike with all curved tubes okay. uh, that were made by this like swordsmith dude out of Czech Republic. No kidding. So that was the whole story is that they were curved like a sword. Right on. Huh? Swords are faster. <laughs> swords aren't really light. No. <laughs> but how, they look How cool. on earth did that connection come about? How'd you they mean? were best based out of Ben too. Oh, okay. Um, okay, okay. And I didn't put the team together. I just rode on it. And then eventually I kind of made my way through the ranks. Turned pro in 98. Was that a paying gig initially? 97? No. It wasn't a paying gig. I didn't get paid until I joined Giant. Yep. And it was after that, even maybe a year or two before it really paid more than just delivering pizza, which is sure. what I was doing in the in the off season. You said your first year of pro was ninety eight. Yeah. And and the same question could be asked today. How do you legitimize being a pro then? Does it mean the team you're on has a pro license? Is it Right, that's the question, right? Like you have a, a card from USAC or yeah. Norba or whatever that says pro on it. Yeah. That's kind of the official thing. But like, there's a bunch of people that pay to be pros. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, I think the definition is that you, it's an interesting question, right? It's, Cause, it's fascinating. Cause there's like I, for rally racing, like I've made money at rally races, uh-huh. but there's not a net. Uh-huh the advantage right so i'm definitely not a pro rally racer i think when you've made more than you've put into it when you break even okay maybe that's when you become a pro i like that (laughs) uh yeah same deal my first first year i was a road racer got paid zero next year was five thousand dollars so what year is this uh 2006 okay 2006 seven eight priority health which became Uh bissell which Oh, yeah. Eventually, teamed up with Livestrong, etc. Yeah, yeah. And zero were you dollars. a Livestrong guy? No. Okay. Because I never raced junior. Okay. Uh, I started a little bit later. I started in college. Were you a runner or anything else before that? No, I was a ball sport athlete. I was a oh, hockey shit. player, uh, tennis player, soccer player. No way. Yeah. Huh. And hockey, hockey was it. I mean, if I could have been a pro hockey player, I would have loved that. But uh-huh. it it got a little bit stagnant in high school. I considered trying to walk onto a team in in college and that didn't shake out my brother where'd you go to college uh middlebury college small school where leo went yeah um and then my older brother three years my senior uh he was also a ball sport athlete but then in high school really got into cycling and i watched him win a collegiate national cycling title and i said cool 
it's about time to switch sports. I'm going to get yeah. into that. Um, okay. Yeah, the professional question. I got paid zero to $5,000 to $5,500. No. Ooh, 5500 right. No, no, no. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? I'm, I remember negotiating that. So I take that back. It was zero. I think my brother and I were teammates in 2007. He got paid $5,000. No. And I negotiated the extra 10%, which is... 10% is a lot, but not at $5,500. Yeah, but at the time, you know, that's, yeah. that's something. And right, like, how do you legit, how do you legitimize being a pro? What is, what is the categorization? Is it, is it doing the job exclusively? Is it a actual uh, professional skill set? How long did it take knows? you to do the job professionally, like to where you didn't have a, a side gig? Uh, that's the second year. Okay. So at, at the fifty-five. Here's the follow-up level, question: yeah. When you late in your career, when you develop a side, another side hustle, do you become not a pro? If if it, well, if, right. If at what the, point? If does... the, yeah, if you go mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and you have to become purely a bike racer, <clears throat> do you become not a pro when you stop doing that? Well, it's, I don't think you do. But you know, anybody outside of the world of cycling, I'll, I'll say that I retired because that's my knee-jerk reaction. I retired from the world tour. That was the crux of my career. Sure. And, and that's why terms like gravel pro are abrasive to me. Like, I don't like the term. But, yeah, that is, it is what I do. I race a bike still. I, I ride a bike. I'm right. a professional bicycle rider. Well, you're coming down to gravel pro instead of coming up to it, which is, that's why you're yeah. your creation. You, and, know, and you, it, you see it as lesser than. There's a bunch of people no. that, that aspire to that. I but it is less professional. It, let's, let's be honest. And it's never going to be I hear a Tour de France. So... I won't disagree with that. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it, is, it is, as hopefully we talk about through the course of the conversation, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing because it's still so young and fluid, gravel racing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Way too much about me. Let's talk about you. This is a good segue into gravel, though. Isn't it's it? a great segue. Yeah. So, Effortless. I think you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the next five years, well, your first year with... Giant was 2002? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to wash over those years, 97 through 2002, unless... Yeah. Is there anything... Is there any standout thing that happens in in that time for you? I broke my back real bad in 2000. Goodness gracious. And the doctor basically was like, you're not going to race bikes ever again. This was a cycling accident? Yeah. Went over the bars on a mountain bike. I was testing rims for Shimano. Yeah. For a friend that works for Shimano. It was just... Yeah, we were doing downhill runs and something weird happened. Yeah. Nobody really knows. Um, broke my back, spit out nine teeth, oh. and I got put back together. And it was, you know, I had to move back in with my parents and, like, it was, it was pretty tough for a bit. Yeah. And then had, had a bad year. Then I had a, kind of a comeback year and then and went, made the world's team. And then I was on Giant the next year. Dang. That's a good um, series of events. So that's yeah. I mean, that, there was something that happened in there that was yeah, a, a moment in my life. Uh-huh. The interesting part of that was that for me, the take home from that was like, well, I got to make peace with not being a bike racer. Yep. And it gave me the confidence, kind of that like things are going to be okay, and I will be happy. Yeah. When that's over, but I still don't want it to be over. <laughs> How long did it take you to to gain that realization? Because it's certainly not the kind of thing you're going to be at peace with in the hospital room on day one. Right. Yeah. Um, 
You supposed to- I don't know. It was just a, in the end, that's kind of like I didn't spiral into a depression right. or whatever, which you don't know until you're there, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, as we go through this life cycle, like maybe if that happened at a different time, I would have handled it differently. But at that point, yeah, it was a bummer. Yeah, it sucked. But like, whatever. I watched Survivor on TV. It was season one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you find other things to live for, right? Yeah. Um, I think I was reading more books or whatever once I was off of painkillers and could focus on things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't, you know, the world wasn't awful without bike racing. Um, but the world with bike racing is is better, better still. Agreed. So how do things change in 2002 going forward? I got on Giant. I don't think, I don't even know if they paid me the first year or two. I think I was on, I got $15,000 a year mm-hmm. after a year or two, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, worked my way up to <laughs> double that and kind of stuck there for a long, long time. Um, but I really didn't, you know, I had roommates and stuff and I Is wasn't this- trying to like make a bunch of money. I just wanted to like keep doing what right. I was doing because it was awesome. Is is this coming down from the heyday of mountain biking? Yep, I missed the heyday, man. Like, okay. if, like if I had skipped college, yeah, I would have been making like with the the physical abilities I had, even as a high school. Like, I was a better climber on a bike when I was fifteen than yeah. I ever have been since. Ah, no kidding. I was just, just you know, that was, crazy youthful watts per kilo. Yep, I had the motor, and I didn't have the brains to do anything with it. You know, I had more experience than any kids racing that were 15 at the time. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I'd bonk and I'd make mistakes and I'd blow off the road. And I was, I was racing against my dad. Yeah. <laughs> because he was smart and I was dumb and young. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I had a motor at, at eventually when I was 15. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, compared to other people now, like as a professional, I've just never really had a physicality that was outstanding, but I've been pretty good at, you know, doing the most with what I have. Sure. Which is a tremendous attribute in the sport. Yeah. If you, not to say that I'm totally weak, but like this, as you know, the strongest guy often doesn't win the race. It's the guy Mm -hmm. that's, you know, prepared or makes the right move at the right time or whatever. How about your skills? Where do you, where do you hone skills along the way? Or is is that just along the way? Um, Or do you, do you get to a certain point, you know, come 2002 and say, shoot, I need to up my game? Or is that a pretty linear? I don't know. For mountain bike stuff, it was just kind of linear, yeah. I think. There wasn't really a moment where things got totally different. Well, coming, <clears throat> you know, I missed a big development time. I was I raced the first world championships in 1990 as a kid. You know, I was Awesome. Where was that? that was Colorado? In, it was in, uh, well, no. it was. It was in Durango. I raced, okay. I think I raced the world championships that were not, UCI the year before in Mammoth. Counterculture. Yeah. But, I, I mean, at the time, I was riding a drop bar, rigid rim brake Bridgestone thing. Oh, a, a gravel bike. Yes. <laughs> it was a worse mountain bike than my gravel bike is in every yeah. way. Yeah. Um, Do you still have it? Uh, I have not that first Bridgestone. I have, like, I think my second Bridgestone at home. Um, but coming out of college and I, I'd rode bikes during the summer, but I tried to focus on, on running uh-huh. and, uh, getting back. I remember going like to the first pro downhill race in yeah. 1998 out of college, Good 97. Lord. 
And I like my jaw was on the floor. I was watching the women's race. And I was like, this is insane. These women, there's no way the men can go faster than this. Yeah, yeah, These women yeah. are aliens. And then the men, and this is suspension and disc brakes and all mm-hmm. this stuff would happen. I was like, oh my God, the guys, it was scintillating watching yeah. people do this. Yeah. Um, and just getting on a bike with suspension on it, a for a suspension fork was like, right. whoa. Mind bending. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and now kids, you know, they go straight from a scoot bike to a full suspension exactly. bike with, with disc brakes and all this stuff. And they learn quicker and it's it's a little easier. With us, it's it was it just took a lot more time. There wasn't a progression. You couldn't go to a place and learn how to jump in a day because all the jumps back then were dangerous as hell. Yeah. And you were lucky if you survived yeah. any of them. Like yeah. even when I was in college, like jumps were fat to flat, man. Uh-huh. The wedge uh-huh. and no landing. Yeah. And how how far you want to go? <laughs> I hope you have strong wrists. You yeah. Know? Was <clears throat> so I when I first got into cycling, it was mountain biking in Vermont, which I think of as Rocky and Rudy, and now we yeah. have great machine built stuff. What what I think of the West as less technical in general. Which yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, what is Bend like? What is mountain biking like? I can ride almost every trail in Bend on my gravel bike. How about twenty years ago? Still, well, my Same gravel year. bike didn't exist. Sure. But I mean, 15 years ago, I was riding my uh, after a good rain. Yeah. Which is this is the opposite where the Vermont thing. Yeah. After a rain, the dirt <laughs> gets fast. Yeah, exactly. Because it's sand. Yeah. Uh, after a rain, you could ride most of the trails and bend on a road bike with 25s with rim brakes back in the day, and it was yeah. it wasn't as fast, but it was fun. Uh huh. Um, so I grew up, you know, around bend on th- those easy trails, and but even before that, those trails, people forget that like mountain bikes predate mountain bike trails yes so when i was first on a mountain bike racing mountain bikes there weren't trails mm-hmm. you just rode gravel roads mm-hmm. on a basically what's a gravel bike it's the stuff we're doing right now is exactly what i was doing when i was nine <laughs> it's, except the bike i was on a bmx bike until i sold enough newspapers to buy a mountain bike so it's Man. so similar. So like I'm super comfortable on gravel, like gravel descents. Yeah. That's like my, that's my jam. I'm a pretty good mountain biker, but like I'm really good at going down just gravel roads at speed that are blind. Yeah, Did, taking a term from Kabush's book, or maybe not. Maybe it's ubiquitous then. Underbiking, like if you're ripping this gravel bike, then on gravel roads. You, I mean, you probably just took that as contemporary. That's what you do. Well, that's what it's everybody the, yeah, did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those, yeah those you certainly standard. wouldn't say underbiking, right? It's not no, until then. you have full suspension bikes, then you can say, okay, now we're, we're now you're going back. Yeah. But it's so fun, though. Like, agreed. It's totally different uh-huh. than riding. Like, you have all these line options, and there's speed, and you, you just cover so much more distance. Yep. Yep. And you stay cool when it's hot because you're moving. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole gravel thing has just opened up all the stuff that. Sure, our bikes were kind of the same 30 years ago, but clothing and nutrition and training and all that stuff has changed to where like now you can just average people can do so much and yeah. see so much. Yeah. These really cool experiences. Which is also, you know, you're talking about stuff that you're doing as a kid, which is more than 20 years ago. Yeah. A bit Not more. to date you, but you said you're I was 27, years 20 years ago. It's crazy. And when I stopped racing in 2004, when I stopped World Tour Race in 2015, 2016 was my first year, and on a whim I did this event in Kansas. And even then you wouldn't really like 
gravel racing was hardly a term. Right. It's that's what's so fascinating to me about it. it's it's nascency, how young it is, how fluid it is, and and it's not young anymore though. It's yeah. it's changed a lot and changing so quickly. Okay, yeah. so here's. But well, where's it going? That's right. the question, right? So, <clears throat> as someone who has experienced sort of the arc of mountain biking mm-hmm. over the past handful of years, let me take let me take one step back. Over the past few years, as we look at gravel and say, "Uh oh, gravel is going the wrong direction. Uh oh, this is this might be dangerous. We're taking it too seriously. Whatever." What I have thought of is okay. Let's let's look at mountain biking as an example, because I'm certainly not the first person to make the comparison to mountain biking. But let's take the best parts of mountain biking during this, I don't know, 15-year period covering that arc. Take the best parts, remove the worst parts, and then apply that to gravel racing, gravel riding, gravel genre. That's your process? Yeah. So what are the best parts of mountain biking from the late 90s into the 2000s? What are the worst parts, and how can we apply that to gravel? Basically, how how do we maintain what is good about gravel without making it suck <laughs> and is it too late <laughs> yeah very good question <laughs> yeah uh i mean what made what makes there's so many parallels and what mm-hmm. makes gra- gravel so special is very much what makes all of these things so special it's there's this there's this uh there's this newness to it you know and everybody that's in it nobody's jaded on gravel in the first five years of, or on, on anything else, you know? Um, so that's what kind of made mountain biking special. And back then it was roadies coming in and winning mountain bike races with the superior fitness. Mm-hmm. And now gravel's doing the same thing. And, and then you have this uh, mechanical advantage arms race that's also really, really cool um, just to see, you know, gravel bikes have changed a lot in the last few, you know, Big time. Three years ago, people couldn't fit 35s on their gravel bikes. Right. You know, it's like, really? Right. That's not a gravel bike. Yep. Um, and now, you know, standard now my changed. Road, yeah, my road bike. Can you your road bike. 35? Totally. I love that. It's changed and it's trickling into other things, which mm-hmm. is cool. Yeah. I mean, that's what was happening with mountain bikes, too. So those are cool. That's like, uh, that's a really exciting time to be in a sport when everybody's new to it and everybody's trying to figure out how to do it best before there's like, this homogenization mm-hmm. of sport, right? Um, and we're definitely getting to that point where gravel's becoming a little more homogenized. Mm-hmm. And I think with the UCI, there's a lot of concern about that happening. But like looking at what the UCI is doing with it, I don't think it's going anywhere. My my, <clears throat> because you didn't ask. My impression is the UCI is going to enjoy the growth of gravel in Europe, which hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. And North America is going to be something of an afterthought. Yeah. And they're going to be happy when the American tourists show up at the Gravel World Championships. But yeah. it's, it's, they're it's not money maker trying. overseas. No. Yeah. They're, like, they're not taking what we're doing over here seriously. And this is the epicenter of gravel. And I think it's going to continue to be that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's different geographically. Sure. We just have something that demands gravel mm-hmm. to be a thing, I think. Agreed. And Europe doesn't. Yep. What I what I really like about gravel now is it's the first time that I feel like literally every single American and person worldwide, let's just stick to America, could conceivably get into the sport. 
much yeah. like they could get into a 5K and run a turkey trot. Like, yeah. yeah, gravel is welcoming in a great number of senses. Granted, this is two white guys talking about being one. Yes, it's expensive. It's very expensive. And you have to have a space to store the bike. And, like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of barriers. There are. There are but, fewer barriers than road racing, Grand Fondos, Criterium racing, time trial racing, even mountain biking racing, where I think there's a lot of style points that were needed along the way. I feel like there is more of a... I saw somebody in a full-face helmet at an event two weeks ago at a gravel race, and I didn't think anything of it yeah. at the time. And now that I've brought it up, okay, obviously I'm thinking <laughs> something of it. But yeah. I'm like, you know what? That's cool. That's oh, helmet. Oh, it's super cool. And so they're here. No, I'm into that. Whereas there's rules about unwritten rules in other genres. So my point is that that is the welcoming nature of gravel, I think, is legitimate, and I like it. Right. Did you but see you that in mountain biking? Oh, yeah, even more so. Okay, okay. I mean, mountain biking at its infancy was literally... I mean, I raced in T-shirts for many, many years before I had jerseys. Okay. And part of it was that you couldn't get jerseys, maybe, or they were expensive. And my mom was a lunch lady, and my dad was a cop, so we didn't have a bunch of fancy stuff. But part of it was just people wore T-shirts and cut-off jeans, and it wasn't trying to be ironic. It's just that's what you had, and that's you don't need... This stuff and it's hilariously said, full circle to today. Absolutely. Now it's people wearing that stuff to stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen this kind of life arc of these different segments of cycling mm-hmm. a lot more than just mountain biking, though, mm-hmm. too. You know, I, I, it was mountain biking and then it was American road cycling, mm-hmm. and I raced road bikes a lot. Um, I and then enduro. Yeah, I was there at the start of that. Cyclocross like I, has had a heyday. Cycle cyclocross, um, and I've seen the ebb and flow of all these things. And you know, what my question is like: What's next? You know, what? How does gravel change in the coming years? Five years down the road. What, what's it going to look like? It'll look mostly like it does now, but it's going to be going some mm-hmm. other direction. And I think that it's going to be... I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a better direction. I'm not real stoked on where gravel's at right now. Interesting. How, and how would you characterize it now? The pro- A lot of the biggest races, I think, are just not very good races. Uh-huh. I think that there are, there's this... There's a standard in gravel that's, uh, oh, you have to be self supported and all this stuff. And it's like, that's just being lazy. Like, (laughs) you're going to have me go somewhere that's hot. Yeah. And I'm going to ride for 200 miles. Not to pick on Unbound, but let's pick on Unbound. No, it set a precedent. Like, yeah. it did. Yeah. And and all these other races... And, okay, that's fine if that's your unique thing, but, like, all these other events that are not unbound mm-hmm. have, have are just like, oh, we don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. We don't have to mark the course. It doesn't really have to be safe. And we don't have to give people anything. Mm-hmm. And we'll charge them more than for any other kind of bike race they do. Mm-hmm. And they're going to fight tooth and nail to get there. That's not sustainable. I don't think that's going to, that's not what it's going to look like in 10 years. Do you think they're the, in a way, bucket list events that people will? Yeah. And I don't disagree with what you're saying. So to harp off that, I think that the big events are going to continue to have 
two to three thousand people who want to line up and do them. And I hope that gravel continues and they remain popular. But people vote with their participation, and so it's going to the smaller events that might be a little bit more niche. Maybe they, people don't want that hell-bent competition side of things, and so they can find that. I think what's great about gravel is there is an event for everyone. There are lots of events mm-hmm. that cater to people's likes and interests. The race we're at right now, RPI, is a, a case in point. Right? Mm-hmm. This is unique. It's a stage race. There's other stage races. <laughs> what makes this unique is that every stage is so disparate. Mm-hmm. There's something here for everybody. Like there's a mountain bike stage race that scares the hell out of people that don't ride mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. There's a hill climb that I'm not too fond of right now. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, a long, a long hundred mile, high altitude, rough, nasty bike race to finish it. And they're like, if you can't find a strength in one of those things, you're just not an all round bike rider at all. And if all those things suck and you hate them, you're still in Ketchum, Sun Valley, Idaho. Like, go have a good time in town. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a beautiful place. Yeah, Um, I'd like the whole draw of Midwest gravel. Like, I didn't want to like it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I do find beauty in the rolling terrain. I really like holding momentum and rollers mm-hmm. and there's and in the group there's a lot of beauty in that i like that i wish the races were i just don't find there to be more twice as much racing in a 200 mile race as there is in a 100 mile race i find there to be 95 percent of the race is in a 100 mile race yep. and the same person will win yep and you just have all these people have to just put out so much more in terms of preparation i just don't feel like it's a very good contract between the person and the sport when like especially a race like unbound where flat tires and crashes take out you know at least a third of people's hopes like what what's your investment your return on investment there is terrible sure yeah selfishly as much as i do still i mean unbound has a very fond place in my heart absolutely and it it's a it's a monument and it's important and i get it and it it is it's like nothing else sure and, and my my selfish piece is, especially with two kids, it's really hard <laughs> to find the time to train for a 200-mile yes. ride, especially coming from New England. And you're a professional. Exactly. Like, how are these thousands of people deciding yeah. that's what they want to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's wild. And that's the cool bucket list part. Like, I, I still think back to my first event when I, 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 admittedly, I won it. And then afterwards, hanging out on Commercial Street at 11 p.m., there's nothing cooler. Yeah. It is a circus it is a fair the the local folks who 95 percent of them are there for the cotton candy and ho-hos <laughs> but then five percent of those folks are going to race it next year for the yeah, first time totally that's inspiring that is cool what's your favorite gravel event currently i mean just we all like what we're good at right sure so I, I like i generally like west coast yeah. mountain bikey gravel races because that's nice. that's what i grew up doing that's where my strengths lie. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I can't really ride away from people that are stronger than me unless everybody's coasting. Yeah. <laughs> and when everybody's coasting, yeah, attack when it's I've easy. Got a chance, uh-huh. <laughs> and that means we're going down a big ass hill or uh-huh. whatever. So, uh, and I just like the landscape. I like big views. I like big climbs and big descents, and you know, 
rivers and whatever. But I like the aesthetic of West Coast racing. Uh, that said, like, you know, rule of three is an interesting race. Uh-huh. It's kind of two races in one, mountain biking and, and road racing. Yeah. And you have this ebb and flow of, of people um, with their skill sets, which is, it's almost kind of like triathlon or something in that way. Uh, yeah. Which maybe demeans it in this company, but it, <laughs> there, there's, there's, that's attractive. That's what makes triathlon attractive to mm-hmm. some degree is because everybody's got their strength and cha- things change. Um, you go to Midwest gravel stuff, the guy that wins at the end is going to be at the front at mile 50 and mile 100 and mile 150. There's no true, true. surprise. I was in yeah. the back and now I'm at the front. Look yeah. what I did. Yeah. I just yeah. did better in the last 50 miles. No, that just, that's never going to happen. Accurate. So the chaos and the unpredictability of of races is attractive to me still. I still love it when it rains. Mm-hmm. I, I like when the rain came out unbound this year and I was working in the pits, but I was just like, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> Sub me in. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, now I wish I was out there. You know? yeah. Um, but yeah, th- what's neat about gravel is that it's not homogenized and it hasn't been turned into the same thing everywhere. Uh-huh. So there are, there's races for me and races for you and races for everybody else. What I'd like to see is shorter races circuit races whatever like it doesn't have to be i think as people do unbound and then the uh, the xl thing mm-hmm. that's intriguing it's crazy yeah. like i you know they did a, a a test event three four years ago mm-hmm. and it was like 10 people and i was yeah. like nobody's nobody gonna want to do that you guys are weird yeah and i was there you know even a couple years ago and it was this is a real bike race sure. like there's 400 people rolling out of here yeah it's a thing like how when does that turn the corner? Uh-huh. Right now, it's like, oh, our race is harder and longer than yours, and that will bring people. Eventually, those people are like, man, I don't really need to do this for 12 hours. 12 hours? Dude, yeah. Well, that's 15, 17, 18. Yeah, 24, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, when I was a kid, Race Across America was kind of a thing. It was, yep. it was televised, but even as a 10-year-old, I thought that was some goofy shit. Sure. You know, like, these guys are whack jobs. Why are they doing uh-huh. this stuff? That's not bike racing. That's surviving. Yeah. Or that, that's not sleeping. Yeah. And that's where I draw the line yeah, for all, every kind of composition. Yeah. Because when you stop sleeping, you go from seeing what you can do to win to seeing what other people won't do to win. Are you familiar with hands on a hard body? Yeah. It's a very similar <laughs> deal, right? <laughs> like, what indignities are you willing to endure it's not about who's fastest at that point it's a matter of who's willing to go that's the fastest person that's willing to go through this you take it you're not a bike packer i am i like bike packing so yeah but that's not right right. you're not a hell-bent bike pack racer i'm not that bike packing itself is awesome yeah but like, I sleep, sleep deprivation as much as I want, and I, yeah. I have, you know, I go swim in the middle of the day, yeah. and I eat a ton, yeah, and yeah. it's beautiful. Glorious. It's not what bike pack racing probably is, which is just keep moving. I want to ride fast. They're kind of That's bonkers the events. Been... I don't want to ride, Yeah. just keep moving. I want to, like, feel like I'm doing something. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, I want to, like, attack and feel effort. And take chances. So now, well off topic, but completely on topic. Is there a particular thing in mountain biking that you saw as one of its pillars of failure that that gravel might be leading towards? Homogenization. Uh, maybe? Yeah, I think I think the 
where it went wrong was out, when the outside assistance came in, which was, that was a token to making it more egalitarian for Olympic races. They didn't want people, they want, didn't want it to be chaotic for the Olympics and they wanted people to have an equal opportunity without, with regard to mechanical okay. problems. What did that look like? Literally, were there like neutral pits? There's no. It's all. It's not neutral at all. But before that, it was. There's no outside assistance in mountain biking. Got it. So what that did was, I mean, there would be Norba nationals that were one lap. Yeah. And it would take two and a half hours to win. Yeah. And if it rained, it would take three and a half hours. <laughs> and that was an adventure. And yeah. like seeing what you see in three and a half hours or two, two hours in a lap, that was mountain biking. Got it. What they did was made it, they took outside assistance and quickly that became a two-sided pit so that one person could service a rider twice per lap. Mm -hmm. And that made it to where they made the laps basically, they, they wanted to keep the people close to the pits to keep it equal-ish. The problem is all of this, the more outside assistance you have, the less equal it becomes. Mm -hmm. If everybody has to get through it on their own, it's very equal. Mm -hmm. So if you put a pit in there, it becomes who, who flats closest to the pit sure. instead of who doesn't flat, which you can choose to not flat by running a different setup and being careful, but choosing where you flat isn't a thing. Yeah. So it becomes kind of more random. Funny. Um, and what it did was it took the courses that used to be kind of epic yep. and turned them into these peanut shaped courses that have like <laughs> one kilometer or two kilometers on each side of the, of the waistline. Yeah, yeah. And you don't go anywhere. You're at these beautiful places and it's like, yeah, we're going to go 400 feet up the hill, mm -hmm. come down 400 feet, go back to the pit. It's, it's that, for me, m marathon racing is what mountain biking used to do, but it's all become so muddled that it's mount mountain bike racing, XEO has become cycle cross. Yeah. Largely. It's the same kind of effort, same kind of athletes. And that's why you see Pitcock destroying people. Yep. Yep. And that's kind of where we're at. How much of that, call it peanutization of the course also had to do with, it's way easier to televise that than a two, two and a half hour lap. So <sighs> might've been something, but man, like televis televisation has been so hit and miss over the last 30 years. Like you can do that for the race. Like you can, if TV's going to be there, yep. set up their course for TV. Yep. But if they're not going to be there, why are you setting up a course for the fans and for people to watch it? There's no, like go to those races. There's zero people there sure. at these races. Nobody cares anymore, Fun. which is a shame because it's a, it's a rad sport. Yep. And that's the way, it's just not the way that people race bicycles or that people ride mountain bikes. Do you watch the races these days? Uh, I couldn't even, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of, of amazing athletes, but like, I'm just not really interested. I really like cyclocross. Yeah. And they do a really good job of televising that. Agreed. And I do, I do watch the World Cups a little bit, but like domestic mountain bike racing, I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm talking domestic, I don't really, it's, okay. it's, no, no, it's no. almost impossible to follow it. Right. Um, no, I'm thinking of putting on your Red Bull TV app and watching yeah. those races. I do watch that a bit. Yeah. I watch the downhill a fair bit because it's covered so well. Yeah. And the short track things are pretty great. Sure. It is. It, I, I talk about the heyday of cycling media. You know, you flip on any number of apps to watch 
I mean, especially road races, that's what I'm keen yeah. to watch. But the cyclocross races, like, oh my lord, it's so cool how visible it is. It is. You see every move. Yeah. You see every drop chain, yeah. and like you can yeah. really paint a full picture of what's going on. Sure. That's, it's neat. Which is also funny because that's part of what sounds like again is one of those pillars that ruined mountain biking. Not that not that mountain biking was ruined off that one thing. It's just, well, mount, mountain biking. There's a special part of cyclocross in that it is wholly created for that race, and it is. Uh, it's built upon everybody having the same width of tire and nobody having suspension and the bike, you know, the tape has to be this far apart mm-hmm. and the race course appears in one afternoon and it disappears a couple hours later. Mm-hmm. It's a very unique deal. Mm-hmm. And mountain biking shouldn't be that. Mountain biking should be, well, the mountains help. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it would be cool if, like, you're yeah. somewhere that's grandiose and has interesting terrain that's you don't just make interesting terrain and that's part of the problem with with mountain biking too is yeah they're they're creating rock gardens you know yeah that's bullshit taking some ski crew guys and having them grab boulders and take the pointy part and stick it up that's not those those are dangerous to ride they're ugly and they're not that fun Mm -hmm. and that's what uci it's hard to watch for me because it used to be even in some of these same venues, I mean, racing Mont Saint Anne and uh, like the racing at uh, the World Cup at, in West Virginia, mm-hmm. those races were diabolical. Yeah, I mean, the best guys in the world were walking down stuff. Holy crap! Like winning races, <laughs> walking. They would rain. It was like, oh, yeah, we're going to walk this flat section. Good lord! And now it's you know like those. The televised rocky parts are super gnarly, but I don't like riding that stuff, man. Like it, it's, uh, they're super catchy on your wheel. Like rocks yeah. don't. Nature has a way of making rock gardens that kind of makes sense. Right. On. And like, I'm kind of bitter about man-made rock gardens. And folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, literally these are man-made rock gardens for the sake of television. We're <laughs> recreating something that almost that yeah. If you can't go to more than 2K from the pits, you can't get to the, the technical features in some places, and they just put them right by the pits so people can watch. Okay, I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna read something that I found recently. This is a 2001 cycling news article that talks about you being okay with being on the older edge of of the pro peloton, so to speak, the pro mountain bike peloton. <laughs> yeah, you were 35 years old then. <laughs> It reads, Carl Decker, 35, is perfectly happy to be racing his bike. The Bend, Oregon native? The Bend, Oregon-based mountain bike pro is in his ninth year with the Giant Factory racing team. And for the life of me, I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. And until that changes, I guess I better keep doing what I'm doing, says Decker. So it was an interesting article that, that the whole piece to me was about balance. Balancing your schedule, balancing dealing with a cold winter, uh, a long calendar year. Do you think the 35-year-old you in 2011 would have looked into your crystal ball and thought you'd be racing 11 years later? No. 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 I mean, it, I, <laughs> I, I didn't think I'd be racing when I was 27. Like, the odds mm-hmm. 
I'm not that special. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't think, oh, I can do this as long as I want because I'm God's gift to right. bicycle. I was just like, oh, man, I'm so stoked that I'm where I'm at, you know. But when I was 30, I was actively saying, like, I don't want to be the guy that's 40 that's just holding on for grim death to this yeah. thing and, like, doing everything to chase this brass ring that... Yeah. But, you know, if you have balance within your life and find other pursuits, then, you know, you can still, I, I'm still enjoying reaching for the brass ring, mm -hmm. I guess. And I still do find, you know, ways forward thing, you know, I think about things too much and I just bike set up and races and I don't know, tactics, stuff like that are still fascinating. And, and, uh, as my Watts per kilo goes lower and lower, mm -hmm. Uh, that stuff sometimes gets better. I still find opportunity, and it's still fun. Well, furthermore, 2011, there was no such thing as being more than a bike racer. So as you saw the guy hanging on to something, that, that was sort of that person was still a hell-bent bike racer. There wasn't the opportunity to, my impression, to still ride a bike and be, air quote, professional, but expand the sport to be to be an ambassador, right? I mean, yeah. as much as I don't love that term either, like right. there's no better word for it. Like you are yeah. an ambassador. I'm an ambassador sure. for the sport. Yeah, for sure. And I think they existed before, but not in the numbers and not with the, with the avenues mm -hmm. to really leverage that, that we have now. Yeah. Um, back then you'd, you'd get an industry job and you'd, yeah, you'd do a lot of the same things, but there wasn't, it wasn't as, as big of a deal. Now there's thousands of them, I guess. Yeah. You know, and most of them never even were. Uh -huh. They they are good at taking photos, or I don't know. It's a, it's a weird world. Accurate. And we both have one foot in one and one in the other, right? Accurate. Um, and we're both doing an okay job at either, but we're not the best at either either. <laughs> So it's we're all triathletes of life. <laughs> yeah. Pretty mediocre at something. You know what I'm good at is talking about cars okay. with bike shop owners that are tired of talking about bikes. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's my that's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's I'm awesome. really really good at that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it's, yeah, what you all find everybody finds their niche, and the problem is. It's not a problem. I, I just value, and I, I hope that other people value the people that start with the performance and come to that later. Because I think that those people have this body of, of knowledge that's important mm -hmm. and uh, versus somebody that's an influencer that comes up from that. And, you know, and it's weird to be kind of competing against that element mm -hmm. um, coming from a racing background and having people that just do wacky YouTube videos and that get 50,000 views. And yeah. it's like, oh, you, there's parody between you. And it's like, man, not in my estimation. <laughs> but, yeah. but like to other people, like that guy's got a much higher value. I hear you. I mean, maybe we're barking up different trees here. What, especially in gravel, what I'm seeing is that the, the surprise rider that doesn't have a background history in any aspect of cycling, not road, not mountain, not cyclocross, they're, they're almost the 19 to 23 year old who's going straight into elite gravel racing, so uh -huh. to speak. And, and they don't have a 
social media following. They're not like a powerhouse photographer, for example. Yeah. And that is raising the level of gravel racing from a pure physiological standpoint. Sure. Yeah, there's talent. Yeah, tons of talent. And so, I mean, again, we were talking about different aspects and avenues. Uh, what do you think about a guy that's 19 or 20 that's racing 100, 150 mile, 200 mile gravel races? Is that, do you see that as good for them? Is that good for us? Is that. I think. I think at what age does that become tenable as like not a bad idea? Because I would argue that if you're 15, you certainly shouldn't be racing 150 mile gravel race. I don't want to scare. Let me uh, let me let me back that up. Sure. Be- because I see your development as a rider. I don't see gravel as developing a full skill set. Mm-hmm. The way that being a roadie develops something really strong. You have this this you know roadies have a fundamental uh, advantage in terms of physiology and reading races and closing races and mm-hmm. tactics that mountain bikers don't have. Mountain bikers have. A skill set that's totally different that is a benefit to them. Mm-hmm. I think if you start racing gravel at 15, you don't get either of those things. And you're gonna, I think that the, the mileage load is so high that you're not gonna be doing any of that shit when you're 30. You'd have a great diesel by the time you're 18. Totally. Which I don't think that's yeah. not good, man, because that should come with age. With zero disagreement with what you're saying, Tade Pogachar, two time. Tour de France winner at the age of 21 or whatever. Yeah. He, I know he has been doing massive mileage from the time he was a preteen. Yeah. Massive. Um, my my funny anecdote there is I was teammates with Mate Mahoric, who had, this was on Liquid Gas. He was at that time a 19 year old two time world champion, Mate. And I was like, you know. Junior like, world champ? Yeah. Okay. Junior and maybe U23. Uh, I think he wanted you 23 as, as the 19-year-old. That's what signed him to Liquor Gas. And I didn't start riding a bike until I was 20. So I'm like, he, he's a he's an incredible conversationalist. I love talking to him. But the punchline being, he's like, I'm 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 nothing. Like this this young guy coming up from Slovenia, you got to watch out for him. And I think at that point, Tade was probably 14 years old. Like to have that kind of talent identification at that age is bananas. So. Yeah, I agree that if these kids are purely going to get into gravel and purely do aspire to do the really long distance races, there's not a huge dynamic effect because it's just going to be a massive endurance base and a heck of a lot of tempo. But yeah, not the VO2 intervals and the, the threshold and, and the you're not going to take that dynamicy. You're not going to take that skill set and parlay it into being a short track champion oh, or a not. track racer or any of these other yeah. things. But if you take those things that we do as youths, hopefully those things all turn you into a better gravel racer later on when you mm-hmm. become you know, a washed up old person mm-hmm. like us. <laughs> For sure. And my hope is, okay, as we see like the, the like you said, nadir of road racing now, road racing's in the toilet here in America. It's crazy. It's terrible. And there's still pockets of it that exist. And hopefully it's, you know, kids can get into gravel racing because they see that as, as a cool outlet, but then still have their toe dipped into road racing, stage racing, mountain bike racing, cyclocross, to play soccer, go play tennis. I mean, stay diversified so that all these things are of ultimate benefit. I don't know. Um, speaking of all these disciplines, that article in Cycling News continues. As it says, you are about to go to Sun Valley, Idaho to race the Super D 
national championships. Oh, yeah. So talking about all these disciplines. For one, so like, for like, the record, I'll blow my, I'll toot my own horn, horn here. Go. I think, yeah, and this is, I'll qualify this too. I think I have won more professional super D's than anybody in the world. That is because remarkable. It's well, it's not because <laughs> because I live in America and that there only happened in America. And I go went to a bunch of the races. Okay, and I, you know there are a bunch of goofball races, and I'm good at figuring out goofball stuff. Yeah. Um, I've re- I don't even know if I won a national championship. Adam always won the national championship, and then I'd somehow outfox him everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, remind but, my, me and remind our fair listener, Super D. <sighs> Super D, it predates, it's basically like the uh, primordial soup that, that Enduro grew from. That's what I figure. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it was always one stage, uh-huh. and it was sometimes mass start, sometimes a time trial. Oh, Lord. Sometimes it was super gnarly, and you'd want like a pretty long travel bike. Sometimes you'd want a hardtail because wow. you were racing in Arizona and they were going to yeah. have a Super D at McDowell Mountain where there's no real downhills. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes it was a lot of them, the funnier and some of my favorite ones were Lamont Start where they'd have you do just ridiculous things like, okay, everybody put your bikes at the start line and you have to run around that tree and then come to your bike or you have to like start on your back yeah, yeah, and when I fire the gun you have to run around the tree to go to your bike perfect so they were goofy but they were super fun and uh, it was made for some super aggressive like downhill like mass start downhill stuff D stands it's, for downhill yeah super right. downhill okay um, and uh, it was a thing for a long time and then when when Enduro the Enduro movement per se came along uh, it kind of just absorbed all the super D stuff and that was another one of those those uh, kind of elements of cycling that I watched. I was like a competitive enduro racer, mm-hmm. which is funny to think now because it's purely the domain of like washed up downhillers and, <laughs> and aggro great bike handlers. Yeah, um, I was never that. I was a guy that was like, oh, this Super D has a slight climb in it, yeah. and I can lose twelve seconds on the descending and make thirteen up on this climb, yeah. and I'll win. And that's how I'd win. Could be calculated. Um, yeah, and it wasn't really down to the calculation. It was just down to like right, it wasn't right. homogenized. I'm going so, to be faster. Ultimately. So yeah, somewhere yeah. if I can pedal a little bit, I can make up yeah. some time. Um, and what happened with that? And and, and there's just a bunch of parallels between enduro and and gravel too. Is you have people with from other sports coming uh-huh. and then trying to. Uh, kind of dictate what the rules of the sport are going to be oh, to suit themselves. Yeah. So, and this is kind of your ilk do this with feed zone tactics and arrow bars and all this sure. talk. And it's like, man, you're just talking about somebody else's strategy. Yeah. Like you can't dictate other people's strategy. If you don't want arrow bars, don't go to races yeah. where people would use those. If you want to stop for water, stop for water, but don't tell me when I want to stop for water. With Enduro, it was the same thing. No disagreement. With Enduro, it was uh, the French guy. He was multiple world champion, uh, Fabian Burrell. Okay. He came to Enduro and, like, would just, this is not, he'd get in people's face, like the promoters, this is not Enduro. Yeah. 
this pedal, you must get rid of this section. It's it's too pedally. <laughs> and he's the he's the world champ. So they're like, yes, okay, yeah. cool. We'll get rid of that stage. Dang. Or maybe they'd say, no, it's that course. But the next year, that stage would be gone. Yep, yep, you do yep. that for five years. And all of a sudden, every stage is built for Fabian Burrell. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's going on with gravel. I don't, you know, I don't think they're listening. Mm-hmm. There's not the the world tour guys aren't aren't approaching the. They're they're fighting amongst the other riders instead of talking to the promoters about actually making changes. Mm-hmm. So nothing's really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a solution for the feed zone thing. Name it. You know when you go to a restaurant and you get the little disc with the lights in it? Yeah. Everybody, the top 100 guys, the first 100 people into the pits, they get one of those things. If you're a pro, Mm -hmm. you pick one of those up and it's set for five minutes. And everybody has to sit there for five minutes until the lights turn on. And then they can stick it in the bin and leave. On their own five-minute window, right? Yeah. It's not the first You come in the same group you left. Yeah. You spend four minutes stretching your back and eating and taking a leak and... Mm -hmm lubing your chain you don't need a bunch of people in the pits mm-hmm. like it's goddamn nascar mm-hmm. you just go in and you, everybody enjoys this time nobody's going to argue that they don't want more time in a 200 mile race yeah. to eat you have two times to stop I it's like not it. it's not that big a deal like do that it's funny Problem because solved. I was always like, man, now we can't do, can't do the time stop because there's going to be the guy who's dragging 15 seconds off the group and he's going to cheat the system. And so once the group leaves again, he's going to just immediately hop on and pretend he was with that group. And then someone's going to be caught because of their Strava data. And you can't have somebody on the podium who is <laughs> retroactively, their title was taken down because of some Strava irregularity. Sure. But I, I like the restaurant reservation desk. I don't know. Like, there's there's op- there's options if you really want to like yeah. get rid of this backbiting. Uh, well, what was cool about not to go too deep on this topic, what was cool about Gravel Locos this year? An incredibly hot Heiko, Texas, where we did a 140 mile race. Yeah, it looked brutal. It was hot. It was tough. 150 mile race at my recommendation, which and now I regret telling <laughs> Fabian that 150 miles is a good idea. Uh, he did a mandatory stop, and and there was still that. Oh, everybody's going to try to get an advantage unless you hold them yeah, to it somehow. There was. So how did they try to police that? Uh, with a good tongue lashing, if you if you cheated the system, so to speak, it was it was nice because people appreciated the the stop and being able yeah. to hydrate and not make dumb decisions. And I don't think that event had what I was just describing this like person dragging off the back who's going to skip the water stop so as to stay with the front right. group it, it worked out amicably I can picture it very quickly going south in other situations Yeah. but most certainly the point being like these races are often in incredibly hot places and yeah. hydration is mandatory and start and, and having people start I mean I did uh, I've done Gravel Worlds in, in Lincoln a couple yeah. times Yeah. and I remember the first year that I did it Josh Berry, my teammate, mm-hmm. a giant, was like, I'm like, what are you carrying for water? And he's like, this. And I did the math, and I'm like, that's nine pounds of water, dude. Huh. Like, surely that can't be the way to do this. And yeah. he's like, dude, nobody's stopping the first feed zone. You got to do it. Oh. I was like, I'm not. I, I won't make it to the first feed zone in the lead group yeah. if, if I would carry 10 pounds of water. Yeah. Um. It's kind of ridiculous that you're out there for so long and that you're going to 
not stop to get water. What, what could also happen is that race promoters just make people's safety a priority yes and have a hun- think of having a hundred yard long neutral feed zone right. where you can come in and grab bottles full of water you're paying what two three hundred four hundred dollars for this race mm-hmm. that's not like and you have thousands of people doing it we're talking about million dollar events here and they're not giving you anything they're not giving you closed courses or marshals at corners or food or water mm-hmm. and the less they give them the more they want it <laughs> it's, it's, which which is still counterintuitive to what you were saying about or not counterintuitive but just counter to the the trying to write an unwritten rule that's that's the thing unwritten rules aren't rules man exactly that's that's a social norm and that's that's between you and your friends and if you got a friend like you can't if it's not a rule, it's not a rule. I, I won a mountain bike race on a road bike once. Yep. A, a short track thing. That's funny. And that, and it was good for me. Yeah. Um, I came around, I was like P9 into a bunch sprint and just came around. Yeah. Buddy. That's right. But what it did, more importantly, is it changed the courses. They made the courses to where you never would yeah. win on a road bike again because the, the promoters would be embarrassed. <laughs> Carl Decker rule. You got to make the courses it's, harder. Yeah, or just make them... Like, give a shit. Yeah. That's yeah, what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah, give a yeah. shit. Like, you got people traveling from across the country to do a race. Maybe you give them, you know, spend the extra hour to give them a course mm-hmm. that's suitable. Um, so I think that I was really excited about the UCI actually to get involved because I thought that they would kind of mandate some standards mm-hmm. that other all these existing races would eventually have to adhere to in terms of safety and and all this stuff and safety is like the main one like there's some races out there that i just will not do Mm -hmm. um because i i don't find them i i just don't the the one positive sliver there is as a race promoter myself especially my wife who runs our event rooted vermont the awareness of safety is something that keeps us up at night yeah we are thinking about it nonstop. i know there are events that are much more cavalier, yes. but there are a handful of events that are like, yeah, how and when do we get ahead of this reckoning that is seemingly going to happen in gravel? Um, it's surprising it hasn't happened yet. As many is. races as there are. And oh, for sure. Just riding through the Midwest on the left side of the road yeah. over crests where it's like, man, I know there's 16-year-old boys with pickup trucks out yeah. here. Yeah. I'd be trying to jump that hill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ride on the right. <laughs> Um, but it's it's tough because the courses are so dang long, and and you are spread thin, and like rooted rooted isn't making seven figures a year. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. you you yeah. guys are, in, are in a you're yeah you're not in a position to just throw some money at it and fix it because you'd be upside down. Some of these these major events, that's where I really have a problem. Is um, I was hoping that the UCI thing was going to like have some some uh, benefit to existing races but it's so detached in what it is from what we're doing in the u.s that i don't think it matters at all oh yeah it goes back full circle the uci conversation it's almost like they recognize that these courses are taking place on open roads whereas i think it could probably be much more controlled environment in europe because it's going to be gravel roads that are unseen I think i'm, I'm hypothesizing yeah i, I kind of wanted to go do the race like it was on my list long list of races Tuscany? 
Yeah, I was just like, yeah, well, man. it's going to be weird, and it's yeah. it's not. There's not even a pro race. Like yeah. it's all. It's just. It's a grand fondo that's dusty. Mm-hmm. You would do really well at it because there's going to be on <laughs> Strada Bianchi. It's going to be on the white roads. It's like. I guess I don't know why I do well at it, but it's because it's those roads you've been racing in Bend forever. Yeah, but that's the. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the what the course is like exactly, but. It would. It's always fun to be there at year one of something and see what happens. But agreed. The way I, the way they're doing it, I don't know if there's going to be a year five with Gravel World with UCI. You know, who knows? Seems- I saw some early document about yeah the rules and and how you can't have a world tour license or you can't race for a world tour team. But then that opened up the opportunity to have like division two riders who are on say Arkea or something. Uh, Somebody has a plan. I don't know what it is. It's funny to see how it's all going to unfold. Yeah, you're quite possibly exactly right. It's going to be exactly like Grand Fondos. The UCI has a Grand Fondo World Championships. Right. Cool. Right. I mean, it, it is cycling. and I mean, yeah. they have that stuff with the girls on the bikes in the gym, gymnasium doing that. That's yeah, like yeah, UCI, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. it's not like... It, I guess it doesn't matter if it's successful or not. It's going to continue if UCI wants to keep it. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. And I love all the the off, off-brand, quote, world championships, single-speed world championships. I love how Gravel Worlds exists. I think that's the greatest name for an event, the one in Nebraska. <laughs> they like, trademarked it. Yeah, so good. <laughs> it is. I, uh, it's pretty great. Um, okay, wrapping up. Presumably you've seen the t-shirt that reads, mountain biking is the spirit of gravel. Agree? Disagree? Yeah, I mean, it's... I think most of the good parts of gravel are are mountain, are from mountain biking. I, I, I mean, I, it's, it's so much early mountain biking in, in what we're doing now that it's, it's like Yogi Berra. It's deja vu all over again. Right. He's got so many good... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, and my hope is that that's the way it stays in this kind of... This awkward phase, right? It's an adolescent sport where it's like a... It's not the goose. It's the mm-hmm. almost full-size gosling that's mm-hmm. got fur sticking out and it doesn't really make sense sometimes. It doesn't fly very well, but there's something in it for everybody and it's not... Enduro, because Enduro kind of had something in it for everybody. Yeah. Um, XCO, you know, Olympic style mountain bike racing used to kind of have something in it for everybody. Those things are so focused that they've lost traction with almost everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think that gravel will probably do the same. That's kind of the way things work. But I'm happy and unhappy with where it's at right now. Yeah. Yeah, my hope is people vote with their participation. Go yes. to the events they want to go to. Gravel is going to continue to be more and more competitive in, in particular events. But Yeah, and I'm managing this giant team now. Oh, yeah? um, this is my first year of being the actual manager for kind of domestic nice. endurance stuff for, for, for giant. And that's my hope is to have the leash for me to like support racers in doing interesting races that aren't. Yeah owned by a multinational gym conglomerate, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bunch of killer races in America that hardly anybody knows about. Yeah. Or, or they're, you know, secondary, third-level races that are in beautiful places, run by people that really care. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I'm excited to go see, and uh, I'm hoping to, yeah, I'm hoping that's the way other people look at it too, and they will. Eventually, it's going to change into something that it isn't. It's it's going to be fun to see what that becomes. Love it. Perfect wrap-up point there. Uh, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow on course. I look forward to seeing you at those events in the future. Yeah, it's Carl, be great. huge appreciation for your time. Ah, likewise, it's been fun. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you, listeners. Like, share, subscribe. Those are three words that are overused, but perhaps underappreciated. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do any one of those three. Preferably all those three. Trust me, it makes a difference. And for whatever it's worth, if you enjoy this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel. Just search Ted King on YouTube and you'll find an ever-growing library of movies that I'm really enjoying making. That's it, that's all. Folks, until next time, please enjoy the ride.